Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Reorg Europe podcast. My name is Richard Woolley, Distressed Debt and Restructuring Editor in Reorg's London office. And today it's my pleasure to welcome partners Simon Thomas and Howard Steele from Goodwin's Financial Restructuring Practice to the podcast. Today we're going to talk about the restaurant sector, taking a dive into the issues faced by businesses and advisors during this unique year, and also looking to the future and the challenges and opportunities in store. My guests bring a transatlantic perspective to this debate. Simon is based in London, where he specialises in business rescue and turnaround, and recently acted for Swiss private equity house Partners Group as purchaser of Coat Restaurants through a prepack administration. Meanwhile, Howard is based in New York and represents creditor committees, bondholders, lenders, indenture trustees, landlords, and individual secured and unsecured creditors in all aspects of corporate restructuring and has recently been advising senior secured lender Benefit Street Partners in the Il Molino Chapter 11 proceedings. Simon, Howard, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Can we start things off by talking about the situation pre-COVID? For the past few years, restaurants on both sides of the Atlantic have been facing challenges from higher labour costs, higher business rates, higher food costs and lower consumer confidence alongside wider issues of oversaturation and notable changes in consumer attitudes and priorities. So I think it would be interesting perhaps to set the scene a little by talking about the situations that were keeping you busy before the crisis hit. Thanks, Richard. This is uh, Howard Steele. I'm a financial restructuring partner in Goodwin's uh, New York office. For the listeners, we hope everybody is uh, safe and well, and for those celebrating, uh, have a nice Thanksgiving. Um, preface before diving into the, the halcyon days of pre-COVID period, um, we just want to say that restaurants are really a, a truly essential part of our society. And if you guys know me and Simon, you know we, we love them. So all you listeners, uh, we gladly accept foodie recommendations. Um, however, we're here, we're one in three restaurants may close permanently. Um, so we really want to give you guys an overview of how we got here and what to expect moving forward and that's anchored in the the pre-COVID days. Um, Pre-COVID what we were seeing was a a culmination of exponential restaurant growth powered by years of low interest rates and heaps of private capital. Um, In the U.S., the U.S. was dramatically oversaturated with restaurants pre-COVID. Perhaps not enough vegetarian and vegan options for my liking but um, we were over-restauranted for sure. Um, given the aggressive leverage on the balance sheets and shifts in consumer demands that Richard uh, underscored, there was a, a strong move away from casual in-person dining to fast casual options like the staples like Chipotle and Panera Bread. And with the severe competition, many, many restaurants were struggling pre-COVID. Um, what we saw in 2019 was that the weaker credits were most effective. Some of the big names that filed for Chapter 11 um, were Perkins, Houlihan's, and Kona Grill. Um, these companies were, were filing Chapter 11 in a time where we had a strong economy. And if you look at the landscape um, across the U.S., many operators closed a significant number of locations in 2019, hundreds of Starbucks, Burger King, Subways, and Pizza Huts went dark. So we really were dealing with a period pre-COVID of changing landscape, changing dynamics, um, and restructuring professionals were being called to action to work primarily on out-of-court in some Chapter 11 cases 
across the U.S. Um, Simon, it was the same story in the U.K. I recall seeing Jamie Oliver's restaurants, ones that I, that I really enjoy, had a, a high-profile administration pre-COVID. What was what was going on in the U.K.? Yeah, thanks, Harry. Yeah, it's a very similar story over here in terms of saturation uh, and, and the business model's just not, not working. So that manifested itself in a number of high-profile CVAs going back to the start of 2018 when we had Byron Berger, following that through with, with Prezzo, um, Carluccio's, which was a CVA in, in June uh, 2018. Um, so we've, we've seen plenty of CVAs in this space, and of, of course that's the, um, that's the compromise with, with landlords in respect of the rent to try and reduce those, those fixed costs. Um, and you mentioned Jamie Oliver's, uh, Jamie's Italian chain, that went into administration in, in May 2019. So even pre-COVID, we were, we were seeing a, a number of high-profile casualties in the sector. And of course, both of you would have been on the front line during those chaotic weeks in March when the market really began to process the situation that we were all facing. What kind of conversations with your restaurant clients were you having at the time? What, what questions were you being asked? Um, the, the, the questions... Uh, we were asked, is, is what do we do, um, right? There, there's a lot of um, a lot of things to, to, to work on, and there's no real way to sugar the pill. Um, as the pandemic unfolded, we saw a, a restaurant apocalypse. Um, I think hopefully our listeners haven't been under a rock. The, the period was, um, was typified by a marked change in consumer behavior and reductions in discretionary spending. I mean, social distancing came onto the scene, and what restaurants had to deal with is was a change in consumer behavior. There's no longer the opportunity to do a movie and dinner or go out to the game and dinner. Walking to the malls and public spaces was constrained. No one was queuing up at Shake Shack. Um, shelter in place. Um, has sadly sort of eviscerated, hopefully temporarily, my dear friend, the tasting menu. So there was a complete change on the demand side and for restaurants on the operating side, um, to the extent they weren't operating under a shelter-in-place regime or restrictions of 25% capacity, which we saw, you need new training, new cleaning products, new equipment, you need to constantly monitor new regulations um, to, to deal with um, the pandemic. So what we saw was almost every sector in the restaurant industry was hit with catastrophic declines in same-store sales um, with the prohibitions on dining and restrictions on capacity. We saw family dining, casual dining, fine dining all have declined significantly. Even quick service was crushed out of the gate before um, they, they pivoted and, and modified operations, which we can talk about. At the beginning juncture, is absolute panic and carnage. Um, what we did, the questions we fielded, um, I think that's my introductory remarks, the questions that we fielded were, how, how do we maximize liquidity? How do we raise new capital? How do we... Um, deal with the new regulations, and, and first and foremost was uh, what would turn out to be a, a bright light or a saving grace in this period is how do we access the government stimulus program? 
the U.S. that meant um, the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program and Economic Injury Disaster Loans. Um, these programs were life preservers to the, to the industry, and at, at the outset of the pandemic, we were asked to navigate our clients through the application process, dealing with um, senior lenders in connection with onboarding a PPP loan, um, all sorts of liquidity management um, aspects during this period of time, um, new financing issues, operational issues, regulatory issues, um, and debt finance type of uh, issues really came to fore. Um, in the UK, Simon, I think uh, the government has done even more than the US to, to support restaurants on the, on the stimulus front. Is that, is that your understanding? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think our, our government's gone further um, than the uh, the laws in the in the US. In that, um, almost as soon as the lockdown started, a, a temporary moratorium was introduced in respect of forfeiture action being uh, taken by landlords, and that was swiftly followed by a prohibition on um, pursuing winding up petitions. And both of those protections uh, were, were initially put in place until the end of June, subsequently extended until the end of October, and then extended again uh, until the end of the year. Uh, we wait to see um, whether they will be extended again, I suspect, um, given the direction of travel, uh, that they may well be. Uh, and that means that many landlords haven't actually been paid rent um, since the December uh, 2019 quarter day. So there's, there's a there's a lot that's been um, there's a lot of debt that's building up in the in the UK, but those government measures have been very effective, um, along in order to protect tenants and avoid insolvencies. And in fact, in the UK, in the same period over the last six months in 2019, we had more insolvencies than we've had in the last six months, and that's because of all the protections that are there and the fact that businesses are able to uh, mothball their their businesses and and hoard cash, and it means that um, that those businesses have have survived this period. Um, there's also been other government measures, tax breaks, grants, and uh, government-backed loans such as the coronavirus business interruption loans. There's, there's two or three sort of variations on them. So the government's been doing everything it can to to pump money into the into the economy and to keep these businesses surviving to come through the other side when hopefully uh, the R rate and, and the COVID numbers will, will fall and, and, and um, hopefully in due course, uh, effective vaccine uh, will enable us to get back to business as usual. As restructuring professionals, um, one of the things we're, we're keenly focused on in connection with the government stimulus and PPP loans is how the bankruptcy courts are, are treating those PPP loans. At the outset of the pandemic, um, there was a lot of decisions whether a debtor could qualify and obtain PPP loans while operating under Chapter 11 protection. Um, that's sort of settled to a certain extent, and now the question has turned to um, whether the PPP funds can be used for non-forgivable purposes while a debtor is operating under Chapter 11, whether they can be transferred to other debtors in the family tree, um, not being tethered to the actual 
debtor entity that had applied for the PPP funds and whether those um, funds can be sold, transferred, assigned to a purchaser under bankruptcy code section 363 sale. Um, we, we, are faced, we face these issues in, in a case that Goodwin's involved in called El Molino, um, uh, an Italian restaurant chain uh, across the nation. Goodwin represents Benefit Street Partners as the pre-petition secured lender, dip lender, and stalking horse credit bidder. Um, in connection with the, the dip financing and the 363, Stalking Horse did, we, we drew an objection from the Small Business Administration with respect to the use of the PPP funds um, across debtor entities and the ability to transfer them in connection with the sale. Um, we, we resolved the issues consensually with the SBA, so it's still an, an interesting issue that that may be litigated in future restaurant bankruptcy cases, and we're very keenly interested in seeing the outcome on that. Simon, I'm curious whether um, how restructuring professionals are, are guiding clients in connection with the UK stimulus measures in connection with a with an insolvency proceeding. I think, Howie, the the government measures have bought a lot of time, and we can go through some of the specific procedures and, and actions that that um, that companies are, are taking. But for the time being, whilst landlords are unable to evict their tenants or start winding up proceedings against them, that means that uh, it, is, it is buying breathing space for, for the restaurant sector. The government had also instigated a very successful scheme at the back, of, back end of the summer holidays in, in August, what was called Eat Out to Help Out which was a scheme whereby um, each person dining could uh, receive a £10 grant from the government towards their meal, um, which saw a huge bounce back in the restaurant sector and really got people's confidence back. That leads us to the question then of um, what the effects of the unwinding of these government schemes is going to be. To what extent do you think then that the, the sector has just been delaying the inevitable pain? A good question, Richard. My take is that we have a very worried industry and very worried lenders and landlords. Um, as you look at the landscape, um, I, I think you're going to see an increase in restaurant filings given the unsustainable leverage in, in the face of a potentially protracted pandemic. We have cooler temperatures on the scene now and the prospects in the U.S. of second lockdowns, and there's uncertainty regarding um, new stimulus. So I think quarter one, quarter two of 2021, you're going to have to expect things to get worse before they get better. Um, I think you'll see very likely a, a fight for survival in the Russian industry and scores um, won't reopen. I think you're going to see a protracted and uneven recovery period. Um, there's a glut of restaurant credits um, in the distress zone. Um, some great names, P.F. Chang, Red Robin, Muscle Maker Grill, The Bobster, Potbelly, Blooming Brands, Dave & Buster's, Denny's, Cheesecake Factory, Boston Market. There's a lot of names that are going to have difficulty surviving this period. And I think, Richard, the, the great question that you underscored is the appetite for landlord and lender 
concessions in tandem with more government stimulus is this mixture that's allowing a lot of um, restaurants to sort of um, bob through the, the murky waters. Well, will, will they continue? Um, and I think we're starting to see uh, an inflection point where lenders and landlords are, are more inclined to exercise their rights and remedies. So you, you add in the debts that are owed to vendors and employees and the prospects of significant reopening costs, hiring and training, employees, deferred maintenance, food and liquor orders, equipment, marketing, and, and the prospects are, are, are daunting. Um, during this, this next period. I think uh, a key question in my mind is how comfortable con customers and consumers will be going into restaurants and getting back to pre-COVID behavior. So it's not only a question of where the stimulus comes from and, and in what form, how the lenders and landlords will continue to be constructive and cooperative, but, but how long is this second surge in lockdown and as Simon noted, how long till a vaccine is widely distributed. Um, this, this period of uncertainty is a strong call to, to get restructuring advisors on the bat line. Um, those restaurants that proactively address the situation, I think, are, are most likely to survive and, and swim ashore during this period. I think that's right, Harry. I think I would add that the levels of innovation and resilience that the restaurant um, businesses in the UK have, have shown the way they've flipped uh, the takeaway and, and delivery models and done everything they can to remain open and, and to keep serving their customers and to keep their, their staff employed has been incredible. And just walking through the city today, there's still half of the outlets open, despite the fact there's, there's only probably 5% of the usual population in, in the city. So it's incredible um, the levels of of fortitude that, that, that the sector is showing over here. In terms of what we've seen so far, so over the course of the last six or seven months, as, as being a, um, an indicator of what we may see more of over the, over the next six or seven months, we've seen more CVAs during the, the COVID period and the lockdown period. So we've had Yo Sushi and then Itsu and, and Pizza Hut, those, those last two, they've switched to turnover rent. CVAs, which has they've become far more prevalent over the over the um, the lockdown and, and post-COVID period, and that's where the um, payments that which are made to to landlords are reflective of the turnover of the individual individual stores, and, and it's a move away from the the contractual rents stated in the leases. So I think we'll see see more of those. We've seen administrations of of um, chains which were previously distressed. So, for example, Carluccio's, which closed um, on the lockdown, uh, went through an administration sale in May. And then we've seen pre-pack administrations as well in the usual way, including Azuri, which includes the Askins, Easy Brands and, and Coke Brotheries as well. So I think we'll see more of those those situations over the course of the next few months. Simon, I'm glad you, you said that. You're, you're totally right. The same in the U.S., the restaurant industry, um, despite these daunting challenges, has exhibited serious resiliency and innovation. Um, it's been nothing short of miraculous to see how restaurants have streamlined operations, turning parking lots and sidewalks into outdoor dining, embracing new health and safety protocols. Um, 
delivery and carry on is, is so efficient now. I've seen the expanded drive-through lane. Uh, I've, I've ordered whole meal replacement and whole meal kits, groceries, to-go wine. Um, there's been a real focus on portability and, and driving average sales tabs up um, as the new best practices. And, and it's been great to work with clients um, at the crossroads of innovation and capital. Um, but the nascent food tech industry is really a thriving space here. I mean, ghost kitchens are, are expanding every which way. And, and the food delivery platforms, it's the number of subscribers to Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash, what have you, um, continue to grow. Um, could be a new Amazon Prime-like numbers eventually. So, so I think you're right. You're seeing a lot of innovation and resiliency in the market. Um, but for the most part, a large share of restaurants are requiring creative liability management. And that's been the story of this period that we've seen here in the U.S. Um, any number of entities entering into forbearance agreements, waivers of default, extension of payment terms, even debt for equity exchanges, a lot of out-of-court liability management tasks going forward. Um, you mentioned a moratorium on rent here in the U.S. There's a lot of agreements to defer or abate rent for a period of time. Same with vendor payments. We've even seen restaurants mothball operations for, for a period of time. Um, likewise, on, on the scene in court, we've seen a number um, of Chapter 11 filings and the new subchapter 5 of Chapter 11 cases for, for small debtor reorganizations. Um, as it was supplemented by the CARES Act, raising the, the aggregate liability threshold for qualifications to 7.5 million in aggregate debt. Uh, that's really been an effective restructuring tool for a lot in it, a lot of the, the restaurants that qualify. Um, and it's also uh, interesting where you can put together some interesting type of restructuring plans where equity can stay in place, stay in control and extend debt repayment terms um, through, through a plan um, under subchapter five. So, so it's been a creative new structure to add to the restructuring toolkit. Um, but, but point blank, we've seen legions of Chapter 11 filings during the pandemic period. The whole gamut from Chapter 11 reorganizations to, to 363 sales to, to liquidations. Um, some of the big names have been Bravo Brio, Garden Fresh, SRJ, QJ's, Barfly, Chuck E. Cheese, California Pizza Kitchen, MPC, Friendly's, Ruby Tuesdays, and Two of my favorite restaurants in the city, um, LPQ and Maison Kaiser. Um, real briefly, in the, in the courts, what we've seen in the U.S. is that bankruptcy courts um, have been deferential to, to restaurant debtors. Now, very early in the pandemic, there was a, a landmark case out of the, the bankruptcy court for the Northern District of Illinois. It's called uh, Hits Restaurant Group. They operated a restaurant in, in Chicago and filed for bankruptcy late in February due to COVID pressures. What they did in bankruptcy is that they didn't pay rent from February to June, and they argued that the governor's executive order shutting down in-person in dining would force majority of that excuse and payment of rent under their lease. Um, not surprisingly, the landlord objected, countering saying 
at Wake Island, this provision doesn't apply. There was an exclusion in the lease that force majeure is not available if there's a lack of money. That's not grounds for a force majeure event. Well, the bankruptcy court sided with the debtor. The bankruptcy court said unquestionably this triggered the force majeure provision, and the governor's order unquestionably hindered the debtor's ability to perform under the lease. So there, there was a relief granted by the bankruptcy court. It wasn't a full sweep for the restaurant debtor. The court found that because um, the restaurant was able to conduct delivery and carry out, that amounted to about 25% of the usable restaurant. So the court ordered the restaurant to pay 25% of both sufficient rent. But it was an interesting dynamic that set the tone for restaurant restructurings during this period. Thereafter, we've seen any number of restaurant debtors very early in the Chapter 11 case seek deferral or abatement of rent. These have been hotly contested by the landlord community, but courts have regularly ordered rent abatement or deferral over landlords' objections. The Chuck E. Cheese case permitted rent deferment. Um, notwithstanding Section 365 D3, the bankruptcy courts are, are starting to um, employ this dynamic and this breathing spell um, during the post-petition, post-bankruptcy period. Um, one other thing that we're seeing is then what do you do with these assets in Chapter 11? We've seen a dynamic whether you can restructure them or, or enter into a 363 sale. But the primary goal game here is to, to reduce um, the unsustainable debt loads and, and right size the, the footprint by rejecting leases. Um, Simon, do you have a similar dynamic over in the UK? Yeah, it, it, it's similar, Howie, and I, I must say, you reeling off the names of all those classic American brands, yeah, it makes me yearn for a trip over to the States, uh, which I've not felt that pang so strongly for, for a while, so uh, hopefully one day soon. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a, it's a very uh, similar situation over here, but we, are, we, we haven't had the same level of court applications and, and proceedings just because those tools which with which um, creditors would would use to bring action have been switched off. The other measure which the government introduced was a temporary suspension of liability for directors from wrongful trading, which actually came back on stream again on the on the first of November. But that uh, and again was another um, means by which uh, the, the government was encouraging directors of companies to keep trading when ordinarily they, they wouldn't ordinarily in those situations they were far from solvency. So as I say, the, the government here has been doing everything it can within the, within the law to, um, to provide that breathing space. But I think as we look forward, we've had these businesses which have been closed for a sustainable period um, or a sustained period and um, have only been able to reopen and then be closed again um, more recently in this in this second lockdown. So it's it's so uneven. Um, it must be incredibly difficult for for companies to uh, budget for what they can afford and what their outgoings can be, which I think is one of the reasons why the turnover rent CVA model is so is so attractive. Um, but with this. All of the government measures we've described, other than the, the furlough scheme, which was which is the scheme whereby um, the government's paying up to 80% of employees' salaries, 
all of the other measures have only deferred the liabilities. They haven't uh, removed them. And therefore, in this environment where um, income has been down, but the fixed costs have remained the same, there's clearly going to be a huge amount of um, debt restructuring that, that, that needs to happen. I'd be interested to hear each of your thoughts on what have been the success stories during this period and, and what have maybe been situations that were less successful uh, and why. In the U.S., um, there, there's been any number of success stories. I, I listed um, quite a few names that have filed during the pandemic, and, and most of them can be characterized as success stories. Um, in, in particular, I look at my favorite, Don Kaiser and LPQ, where um, they were able to run a very quick sale process in bankruptcy um, and shed underperforming locations um, by utilizing bankruptcy code section 363 sales and by getting an interested stalking horse purchaser um, that was interested in, in, in purchasing the assets very early, um, was able to preserve many locations, clean up the balance sheet and maintain a, a lot of employees. Um, likewise, you're seeing um, of the larger outfits reorganized. Um, you saw California Pizza Kitchen just exited bankruptcy, I think, yesterday, uh, having shed a, a great number of, a uh, great amount of debt and instituted some operational um, dynamics to make them more competitive in, in the, the, the quick service sort of economy. Um, and in connection with, with social distancing protocols. So there's any number of, of success stories percolating through the system in the, the El Molino case that we're working on right now. It's teed up for a, a 363 sale that, that will preserve um, jobs and, and lead to uh, the best positioning for a successful outcome post-pandemic. Um, so we're seeing a lot of success stories um, in the industry and, and largely what, what the, the hallmarks of those is, is getting restructuring advisors in the door early. Um, it's never too early to engage with your stakeholders on, on where things sit and to try to, to, to put together a comprehensive and consensual restructuring. Um, it, these things are predicated on strong communication and it's never too early to get restructuring advisors, business solution professionals involved. I think we see a lot of the successful cases are, are, are outfits that are very proactive. If they've taken the 360 review of operations, assets, liability, liquidity, and made the determination that this is a business worth fighting for. And then what we've seen people do is embrace the stimulus measures, be first in line to, to get the PPP loan, um, to work with your advisors to to best position yourself for that stimulus and any new stimulus that hopefully is forthcoming. Um, I think other things is, that we've seen for success stories is, is strong liquidity management, um, the ability to raise new capital, the ability to seek concessions from suppliers and landlords, people that are restaurants that, that understand the distinction between investments and costs, especially in, in updating IT technology is very important. 
Um, I think a lot of the success stories we see are, are people outside of bankruptcy doing this proper blocking and tackling. And I think it's a, a rich environment for for folks to to even grow um, in the sense that there are a lot of desirable closed down built out facilities that may be a better location for, for the restaurant given the current environment. I think you're going to see a lot of new owners and, and concepts and, and employees that are looking to start something new and own their own restaurant or partner up in a joint venture. And, and on the M&A front, I think you're going to see a lot of distress opportunities um, to, to employ capital if, if um, you see an opportunity that, that is interesting to someone. So I think we see a, a lot of success stories. I think Simon really underscored the ability for people in the restaurant industry, not only the resiliency, the, the adaptability, the ability to pivot, um, to enhance efficiencies, right? Um, to, to build out freestanding restaurants, ghost kitchens, fix your drive-through performance, double lanes, things like that. I mean, I saw on the news that In-N-Out Burger and Chick-fil-A um, are, are using handheld devices where people, uh, employees are walking through the drive-through lane to take orders in advance to, to raise efficiency. Simon Chipotle has got it down pat here. Um, they have Chipotle lanes where where you got to order on the, on the app. At first, you're frustrated. I can't, I got to order on the app before I can pick up my hand. But then once you, you get in sync, it's easy breathing, and it seems that people have really gravitated to that stuff. And I see coffee shops like Work Coffee. A lot of places are employing um, um, the app-based ordering. And, and my favorite sort of success story, I think, is, is the virtual programming, the live and private cooking classes that, that are available in, in this environment. I, I can't wait. I think Pow is doing a fortune cookie cooking class. I think, I think we all need to sign up for that. That, that seems brilliant. So, so those are the, the success stories. I, I think conversely, what, what restaurants are doing less well is, is burying your head in the sand and not doing all those elements of, of having success here. Um, I, I, I think you, you can't be frozen during this period. I think being proactive, communicating with your landlords and landlords and advisors and, and stakeholders and addressing um, the distress and uncertainty as best you can in this period is, is where we see the success. If you don't do that, um, it puts you even more in peril. I think success in the UK is the fact that so many businesses have been able to continue going. And I think very much that once the government protections are removed, then Unfortunately, we'll see a lot more consolidation in the restaurant market. But in the meantime, the pivot to delivery, all of the adaptions that businesses have made, our client Deliveroo has, has worked uh, enormously with, with restaurants um, operators in order to, to help them get into the delivery market. We've been helping them with that. And then the success of the government eat out the help out scheme so that, that um, drove £850 million pounds worth of, of government money into the restaurant sector. There were over 
160 million meals eaten. So that was a very effective way of, of getting liquidity back into these businesses. But where we stand here today with midwinter, um, not even uh, a month away, um, the restrictions on people meeting indoors and the fact that the the numbers are, are still really concerning, um, that, that means that the the barriers to the recovery is still are still there and, and that's what Howie says with the help of the insolvency practitioner community, that's what we, we need to address. Earlier on we touched on the topic of consumer confidence and how that might impact the recovery of the restaurant sector. Uh, this has been a, a hot button issue for, for several sectors throughout the uh, pandemic. Um, I think the aviation sector has been putting out some of the worst um, projections of recovery in terms of the length of time it will take. Um, can we look a bit closer at this issue for the restaurant sector? Yes, in the U.S., definitely. I mean, even even in aviation, the, the restaurants and the terminals are, are struggling given the, the lack of traffic. Um, and like the aviation industry, I think the restaurant industry as a group has done a, a very effective job to educate um, restaurateurs and to lobby the government for appropriate stimulus and, and relief. So I think I think they've done a, a great job at being proactive and communicative with the government and stakeholders to try to, to survive during this period. I think you, you really ask the right question on what does the future um, hold, and, and, and I don't have a, a crystal ball, um, although I'm getting hungry now, um, <laughs> all this restaurant discussion, but I do think you're going to see a period of time where consumers' uh, behavior and demand is, is uneven and changing. Um, in my heart of hearts, I hope that, that with the vaccines, um, things go back to normal tasting menus, people cram together in New York restaurants, um, the lifeblood of the restaurant industry um, revives. But I do think we're going to go through a, a long period where consumers are, are more cautious or social distancing remains part of the experience that people people are, are less likely to kind of jam into. Um, those cram tables or bars, uh, people will, will be a little bit safe for the time being, and that's going to, to put some pressure on, on the recovery in, in the restaurant industry, um, in my mind. But absolutely, in the UK, Restaurants are a core part of the fabric of our society. And the sooner we can get back to normal, the better. There'll be huge pent-up demand for people to go and, and socialise together and, and meet together. And we have had an announcement by the government yesterday that sporting venues are going to reopen, albeit with a limited capacity. But that the social infrastructure is starting to come back now, um, including indoor events, theatres, concerts, and that sort of thing. So I'm sure that this this industry will get back on its on its feet. Um, unfortunately, the uncertainty as to how long that will take. But that's why, with the help of insolvency practitioners, reaching compromises with creditors that that effectively make the best of the the, the horrendous situation that everyone's facing. That's the way through the the pandemic.
reaching that consensus and I expect to see a lot more of that in the new year. Now, certainly here in the UK, we've seen some major changes to the legal tools that companies can use uh, to restructure their businesses, which have been implemented actually during the, the heat of this crisis. Simon, could you maybe speak to those a bit? Yeah, that's great. So I've, I've already mentioned the, the temporary provisions around the relief from winding up petitions and um, wrongful trading. But there were also permanent changes introduced to our laws. And these are the, the biggest changes since 2003 in the administration regime shakeup, and possibly even going back to the 1986 Act being introduced. These are, these are massive changes. So three uh, permanent changes, the end of the ipso facto termination right, and then more um, applicable to the, the sector we're discussing, the 26A restructuring plan or super scheme as some people refer to it, and also the standalone moratorium. So I think if we start with the, the standalone moratorium, I think you can count on one hand the number of times it's been used nationally. Uh, it really hasn't been used at all yet. And I think there are, there are two reasons for that. One is you need to keep your, your lenders whole. The other is with the government relief from forfeiture and winding up petitions being in place, Effectively, you don't need the moratorium at the moment because the government has already provided it. So I think once those protections fall away, the um, standalone moratorium will become a lot more prevalent. And the way I can see it working in this sector, I think it could, could be effective, both for the individual mum and pop style restaurants and also some of the, the chains that have bilateral lending arrangements whereby hand in hand with a contractual standstill with the lenders, you could have the standalone moratorium remaining in place. So that's a pre-insolvency moratorium. It involves an insolvency practitioner acting as a, a monitor, but executive authority still remains with the incumbent directors of the company. Uh, the company benefits from protection from actually by creditors. So that, that could well provide the, the environment for the, agreeing the, the compromises and the, the deals that need to be done with, with stakeholders in order for these businesses to, to come out the other side. And then we've seen the restructuring plan used twice so far for Virgin Atlantic Airways and more recently in Pizza Express, where there was a operational and financial restructuring using the restructuring plan and at the same time as CVA to deal with the, the property estate. Uh, that was a, a restructuring plan which was um, received the um, support of both classes of creditors. So there was no uh, cramming down in either Pizza Express or Virgin. And it's it's um, it's interesting to see that that used in, in this in this sector, um, and I think there are other restaurant groups which are um, of, a, uh, of a size where we can see a 26A plan potentially being, being used again. And I think at the moment uh, they're currently seeking Chapter 15 recognition in the US. 
That, that's right, Simon. That's fascinating overview. Thank you. Um, yeah, Pizza Express is seeking Chapter 15 recognition, um, and, and it's an interesting dynamic. The, the availability of Chapter 15. It's quick plug for for Goodwin. Um, we we are one of the leaders in in providing expert reports that um, restructuring plans in, in the UK will likely be recognized under Chapter 15. Um, we didn't do the one in Pizza Express, but there, there was a, a credible one put forth. And then uh, Chapter 15, laying the groundwork, um, is an ancillary proceeding here in the United States. Uh, it's the primary proceeding in another country uh, here in the UK, whereby under Chapter 15, you get recognition of the, the foreign proceeding, um, inclusive of a stay of collection uh, efforts by U.S. creditors for the debtor's U.S. assets. And then it, it, the real purpose is to facilitate, as Simon said, that the reorganization efforts in the, the main jurisdiction here, the, the plan that, that Simon described. So the, the cross-border elements of, of this particular one in the restaurant industry should be very interesting for, for restaurateurs that are on, on both sides of the pond to, to follow closely. To finish, I want to broaden the focus out a little bit and ask you, what do you think is going to separate the winners from the losers among restaurants in the post-COVID world? I'll take a stab at Howard. Um, my thing is is food tech, and I think I think we're at a period where the convergence of innovation and capital is going to be the primary driver of success. Where Goodwin really thrives in partnership with its clients. Um, you've seen the folks that have really survived the pandemic and are going to be well positioned to succeed have embraced um, innovation and new technologies. You, you, you see um, the growing number of subscribers on the food delivery apps, um, the, the ability to modify locations to, to do different platforms for social distancing, um, and the ability to really drive up average sales tabs in a, a creative fashion. Again, I think it's going to be a, a lot of opportunity in this sector because the, the competition is going to drop off the weaker um, outfits are, are not going to be successful. So there's going to be, as Simon said, a fair number of consolidations. Um, and I think the, the the restaurants that embrace new technologies and innovation are going to be the ones that succeed in the long term. I think where I see it is it's those companies which are proactive and that seek consensus with their stakeholders using the expertise of the insolvency community, the insolvency practitioners to come up with imaginative solutions to their to their debt problems. So that can include debt for equity swaps. I think we'll see uh, any number of those next year. It's the issue of the government-backed loans, and it's quite conceivable that the government will end up with equity stakes in some of these businesses. Likewise, employees and, and paying their wages, whether equity is given to, to employees as part of their remuneration structure. So I think, I think there's some sort of imaginative ways around 
the crisis and, and trying to come up with a sustainable model. And those who are proactive and recapitalize themselves and get ahead of their competitors, they're the ones that will be in pole position to benefit from any consolidation in the sector and to come out of the crisis stronger and more sustainable. I think that's a great positive note to end the conversation on today. Simon, Howard, it's been a real pleasure having you and uh, we really appreciate your time again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Great talking with you.